10 years ago, I, I, uh, you know, I never really would have thought that supply chain issues would have dominated any political or media discourse, but this year Jack White has a tour called Supply Chain Issues, so um, I think we're cool now. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by Chris Sands, who's the world's greatest panelist, as I don't, we now know. <laughs> thank you, Scotty. Good to be back on Canusa Street with you and to have another episode built on one of the panels from the Pacific Northwest Economic Region Summit in Calgary, which we were both at. That's right. And were you the moderator or were you a panelist for this This was one? interesting. I was going to be the moderator. I got upgraded to panelist or downgraded to panelist, and uh, and it was an all-star panel taking myself aside. We we were moderated by Allison Gifford from Amazon. We had uh, Ted Alden, many people know, was a Financial uh, Times reporter in Washington, Washington bureau chief during 9-11. He's written a lot on the border. Now he has a job I once had. He's the Ross chair at Western Washington University and still uh, very, very involved in these issues. We also had Spencer Cohen. And Spencer uh, has been following China for a long time. He talked about China-related supply chain issues, and I tried to cover a little bit of the Canada-US. You did a great job covering Canada US as you always do my friend and so with that why don't we take a listen here comes the panel uh, it is my great pleasure today to introduce our uh, moderator and panelists for the coming session actually just our moderator and I'll, I'll leave those other duties to her we have Allison Gifford is a senior manager of public policy for Amazon Canada where she over now Amazon Canada seems to arrive on my doorstep very often I've got young adult children, and I'm learning how to use it even better. So those packages seem to arrive numerous times a week. Um, so uh, I think we're all becoming much more familiar with the world of Amazon and how it affects our lives and improves our lives in many ways. Allison oversees uh, operations, trade, customs, transportation, and sustainability. In her mixed career, uh, varied career, I would say, spent mostly in Ottawa. She has advised Fortune 500 companies health agencies, labor unions, and political leaders. She chairs the Future Borders Coalition Supply Chain Task Force, and we know that supply chain has become top of mind for most of us. So without any further ado, Allison, uh, I'd like to invite you on the stage to uh, introduce our panelists and to lead this great session. Thank you. Thanks so much, Richard. Um, it's great to be here today, and I'm more than excited to introduce you to some high-energy, high-thinking uh, friends here on the panel today. Um, there's going to be no shortage of ideas, and uh, I think we're going to have a lot of fun, even at this early hour in the morning. Um, so further down at the very end, we've got Spencer Cohen here, who is founder of High Peak Strategy and a recognized expert on U.S.-China relations, industry analysis, and international trade and ports. He's also a member of the 2021-2023 Public Intellectuals Program Fellow with the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations and holds a PhD in Economic Geography. Next, we have Ted Alden. He's a journalist, author, and the Bernard L. Schwartz Senior Fellow of the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's your favorite Ross professor at Western Washington University. And next to me, we've got Dr. Christopher Sands. He's director of the Wilson Center Canada Institute, an internationally renowned specialist on Canada and US-Canada relations. He's also an adjunct professor of Canadian studies at John Hopkins University. 
He regularly gives testimony in the U.S. Congress and the Canadian Parliament and is a widely quoted source on Canadian and uh, Canadian politics and has published extensively over a career of more than 25 years in Washington think tanks. Believe it or not, I abbreviated everybody's bios. I could have gone further, but, uh, but we've got a smart bunch here today, so uh, let, we should just get to it then. Um, so we're here to talk about global supply chain issues. I think we could all get quite in the weeds, but I know we have a lot of, a lot of friends from across industry and government here, so maybe we'll just take it at a very high level, and I might start with you, uh, Ted. So 10 years ago, I, I, uh, you know, I never really would have thought that supply chain issues would have dominated any political or media discourse, but this year, Jack White has a tour called Supply Chain Issues. So um, I think we're cool now. Um, but I'm wondering if you can give us a very big geopolitical overview of how we got into the situation where supply chain issues are dominating everybody's mind right now. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much, Allison. And it's great to be here with Spencer and, uh, and with Chris and with, with all of you. So, so I want to talk a little bit about the global challenges part of the, of the sign uh, up here. I mean, I think we're all waiting for the world to return to something that feels like normal. And we see, you know, we see little hopeful signs. We've got this meeting, kind of feels like normal. Uh, getting across the border is easier than it used to be. Uh, travel on airplanes is not quite there yet, but you guys are moving in the right direction. So, so we're headed back uh, that way. But we also know there's a lot about the world right now that doesn't feel normal. I thought the, you know, the Consul General, Canadian Consul General in Seattle, Mia Yen, put it well at, the, at her talk at the initial reception, that a lot of the world feels unpredictable uh, right now. And, uh, and, and we see the evidence all around us. I mean, we've got the, the worst, bloodiest war in Europe since the Second World War. We've got inflation at levels that we have not seen in 40 years. We've got government instability, including in many democracies. We've got rising tensions between the U.S. and China that Spencer's going to talk more about. We've got supply chain disruptions. And we've got the most severe labor shortages any of us have seen in decades. I could, I could go on for a long time. There is a, no single reason for all of these disruptions, no one answer for why uh, we've got supply chain issues. And I don't want to oversimplify, but there is an overriding dynamic going on here that is well understood by students of international relations. If you look at the world from a 30,000 foot level, the dominant feature for the last 75 years or so has been the economic and military power of the United States. Um, the U.S., along with its allies like Canada, established the economic and security regimes under which we are still living today. NATO, NORAD, the G7, uh, the GATT World Trade Organization, the IMF, the World Bank, NAFTA, USMCA, there's a lot more. Um, and after the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, um, we integrated China into that system and to a lesser extent, Russia. But we're living through a period right now in which much of that is coming undone. Um, we can debate the causes. Uh, the global financial crisis of 2008 had a lot to do with it. It casts a lot of doubt around the world on the Western economic model. And it's crystal clear that China and Russia in particular have absolutely no interest in being what Bob Zellick, the former U.S. trade representative under George W. Bush, called responsible stakeholders in the global economic system dominated by the West. Uh, they have been completely clear in their ambitions. 
militarily in the case of Russia, economically so far, fingers crossed, in the case of China, said quite openly they want to move from a global system that's dominated by the West to one in which there are several great powers, including China and Russia, who play major roles. And we know from history that periods in which dominant powers are being challenged by rising powers are uncertain, unpredictable, and dangerous times. Um, the most infamous one, of course, is the 1920s and 1930s, when a, a fading Great Britain and France were, were challenged by a rising Germany, of course, a rising Japan in, in Asia. And uh, the United States at the time very much wanted to stay away from, from the old world conflicts, and so didn't intervene until it was too late. And so we know how that story ended. Um, the big question I think now is, are we in this kind of 1920s, 30s period of instability? Or are we more in a 1970s kind of period? There are a bunch of us in, in this room who are old enough to have some memories of the 1970s. And there's a lot of parallels. We had very high inflation in the 1970s. We had soaring energy uh, prices. We had unresolved conflicts around the world. Um, there were really two causes of what went wrong in the 70s. One was the US pulling back from uh, the Bretton Woods system in which the US dollar had been pegged to gold. And so that threw the monetary system into chaos. And the other was the rising resource powers that formed the OPEC cartel. Um, I don't know, I'm not smart enough to know whether we're in a 1970s type period or a 1920s, 30s type period. But I wanna bring it back to Penwar here. This talks about global challenges, regional solutions, by talking about one very stark difference between the 20s and 30s and the 1970s. In the 1970s, the major economic powers cooperated very closely to try to address the challenges. They established the G7. It was created in 1975. They stitched together a new monetary system based on floating rather than fixed currencies. They negotiated ambitious new trade deals that eventually led to, to NAFTA, USMCA, and the and the World Trade Organization. They coordinated on economic policies and they worked together to try to undermine the cartel power that OPEC had. That cooperation really set the stage for the long prosperity we enjoyed from the 1980s uh, onward. In the 1920s and 30s, in contrast, the major powers did not cooperate. You had some of the worst trade protectionism we've seen in history. You saw countries cut off immigration flows. They devalued their currencies in a beggar thy neighbor struggle for economic gain. And that sadly set the stage for the war that, that followed. And just now I'll finish off here. I know I've been going on for a while, but if you look at where we are today, you can see signs of, of both. Um, there are unfortunate signs, I think, of conflict. Uh, we've seen rising trade protectionism of a sort that was dormant for a long time. Um, Lori Troutman and I are working uh, on the COVID border shutdowns, which have come up here a number of times. Countries, including the United States and Canada, very much went their own way on that. There was minimal cooperation. But there are also encouraging signs. Uh, Ambassador Hillman was talking yesterday about the US-Canada work on critical minerals. Um, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen talks about friendshoring, where the US is gonna work with its allies to build more resilient uh, supply chains. There's been impressive Western cooperation, if not global cooperation on the Russia sanctions. So you know, just to conclude, the future is not written, right? We, we, we get to make the future and it's very much going to depend on how we respond to this complex set of, of challenges. And I, and I hopeful and 
we're all trying to do that in our small way here, that we're going to nurture the cooperation we need to respond uh, to this complicated set of, of crises. Sorry to go on so long, but that's I want to give you a big picture over. That's not an easy question. Um, <laughs> that requires an in-depth answer. Thanks so much, Ted. Um, before I move on to Spencer, I just want to remind uh, the folks in the audience to ask your questions on the Whova app. Um, and if you're wondering where to find that, go on the homepage and then go to session Q&A, scroll down to session seven. And if you click on that, you can send us your questions. I see we're getting a lot of good ones here. Um, so I'm going to take it next to you, Spencer. Um, we're seeing calls from President, uh, for President Biden to roll back China tariffs to help tame inflation. Um, where does that leave Canada-U.S. relations? And does that, is there anything changing in terms of China's positioning as a player in the global supply chain? Cool. Uh, thank you, Allison and Ted and Chris. Always a really great pleasure to be on the panel with both of you. And thanks to Penwar for the opportunity to share my thoughts and participate today. So I think that you know, if you look first to unpack inflation a little bit and really what's driving inflation, you know, we've all been sort of jarred by a lot of the, the rapid increases in prices. Um, there's a whole bunch of, there's different measures of inflation, um, including CPI, the Consumer Price Index, Personal Consumption Expenditure Index, uh, and all the core measures of that, which exclude food and energy. But nonetheless, the, the general theme since 2021 has been rapid increases in the price of goods and really eroding of consumer power and household wealth. Uh, because of inflation and rising prices. The way I see inflation and the way I characterize it is really a, a gross imbalance between supply and demand, kind of basic economics, where we have either a disruption in demand, where there is a sudden uh, surge in the purchasing power of individuals and households, um, both in the US and Canada, that really um, drives up prices because there's more demand in the economy. And then there's the supply side where you have um, either if you have the same amount of demand, but you have a restriction or limitation on the, on the availability of goods, or we have a shortage and shortage economies, which also drive inflation. What's unique about this period is that we're experiencing both sort of phenomena at the same time. So uh, there, there were a lot of um, expectations early on. We had, no one had been experienced a pandemic before, so a lot of the federal fiscal policy uh, was really focused on shoring up lost wages. Um, so there is an argument to be made that there was um, we might have overshot fiscal stimulus in some areas, which helped to drive demand because we put more money in people's pockets, which created much more demand for physical goods. The other problem, though, is that uh, people's consumption behavior fundamentally changed during the, during the recession. Um, part of it was preference. Part of it was people were uh, simply um, willing or wanting to spend more on physical goods because of their reluctance to go out to stores and in actual places to buy or to consume services. Part of it was simply the inability to go out and buy goods and buy things physically, right? Many people, stores were closed, restaurants were closed. Much more of that consumption was shifting to from services to physical goods. And a larger share of those physical goods are things that actually come to our ports from places like China. So those were two major factors that contributed. Um, we also had, as I mentioned, with wage growth being a major driver of that. And so, and on top of all of that, we of course had the factory closures, the shutdowns, um, we're still seeing the ramifications and we will feel the ramifications, the ripple effects of the zero COVID policies in China that have been incredibly draconian. Um, with, we can talk about this too, unpack that maybe, but um, the questionable efficacy as well um, in terms of how effective those policies were um, given China's own kind of conditions and the limited efficacy of their own vaccination programs and vaccinations. So 
all these things contributed heavily. And then on top of all this, you had a supply chain logistics system that was incredibly fragile. You know, we had, we had gone from, uh, for a long time, we had lived in a, a period of so-called just-in-time logistics, where um, everything was really based low inventories, um, kind of quick, rapid replenishments per demand. And we had issues of labor shortages in the trucking sector. The, the latest estimates that are widely circulated are about 80,000 truck driver shortage in the U.S. alone. And that's projected to grow at about 150,000 over the next five to 10 years. And so lots of challenges also with warehouse space. So it's a system that was really working okay, but if anything exogenous or sudden happened to jar the system, it was not built, it didn't have the so-called resiliency, and that's a key word that we've heard a lot about now in supply chain discussions, resiliency, and including redundancy to be able to absorb those impacts. Now, coming back to inflation, you know, one of the big uh, the stories about China is that, you know, we've seen that wages in the U.S. have not really grown in real terms over many decades. But part of the why that's been allowed, why we've been able to see low inflation for many years is the fact that China has, we've been able to outsource so much of our, so much of our production to places like China. China has really allowed for um, low cost, wide extensive low cost labor to allow for many physical goods to be able to um, be produced overseas and then consumed by US consumers. That's also changing. So that's a long-term trend that's gonna be happening. When China first ascended to the WTO in late 2001, Chinese wages were about 26 times cheaper than the US. They're now only four times cheaper. Since 2010, Chinese wages have been going up. Um, that's largely because of an exhausting, exhausting of the cheap rural labor that China had in the countryside. There's underemployed workers who um, seem to kind of arrive as an inelastic supplier, infinite supply of those workers arriving in the city store and factories. Those days are also over. China has its own growth problems as well that we can talk about, but they're also going through a transition period. So that's another, I think, key kind of disruptive factor that is going to play into long-term prices as well. And we're going to be seeing a lot of companies at least on the fringes now, talk about this idea of redundancy, moving from uh, the just-in-time logistics system to a much more robust um, and resilient system that can absorb many of those impacts. But it's questionable how likely or capable that is. Um, Ted mentioned about this, Janet Yellen was talking about friendshoring or reshoring. Um, that's certainly a possibility, I don't know we're gonna talk about that, but that's certainly a possibility. But I think just bringing it back to the question of inflation and logistics, so I think that in the, the near term, things will eventually kind of settle down. Um, I do believe that supply chain logistics is the single, despite all these other factors, supply chain logistics and bottlenecks continue to be the number one factor driving a lot of the challenges we have with prices. Um, as I mentioned, the shift in consumer behavior, we also saw in a lot of retailers that allow their inventories to draw down a lot during, during the early days of the pandemic. And then all of a sudden, all of them seemed to at the same time replenish those inventories, which is sort of a fallacy of composition problem. You know, everyone's trying to do the right thing, but if everyone does the right thing, then it's all bad for everybody. So the discussion around tariffs, tariffs do contribute to inflation. Um, they are inflationary. The latest estimates from the Peace Institute of National Economics based out of DC estimates that um, if you include not just tariffs, but quotas and tariff-like sort of policies, it costs US households about $800 a year. So. That is something that is being discussed, is if there is a way potentially to um, scale back, especially since tariffs are a tax, and they're a tax borne by, by households, they're a tax borne by businesses, they're not paid by China, um, they're actually absorbed by US consumers and Canadian consumers and the like. So 
There is discussion around that. It is small in relative terms, but the difference is, is that despite all these other factors that, at least in the near term, the Biden administration has no control over, tariffs are a policy choice. And it's a choice that they could revert, they have some control over. So I do expect to see some change and see possibly some scaling back. But one last note before I want to pass off to Chris is that um, I do think that, um, you know, it is a limited effect, I should say, tariffs. Um, but it does have some minimal impact. But it should put the, um, I'll stop there. Sorry, I lost my, sorry. Um, yeah, I would say it's a policy choice and it's uh, of limited impact, but it could have some contribution to reducing costs. Thanks so much, Spencer. Chris, let's make this about us, Canada and the US. Um, so I, uh, what, what's unique about North America in the context of all of these global supply chain shifts? And I do see a question here from, uh, from Scotty as well that asks if border crunch is contrib contributing to that. I think we've seen you know, an overall dialogue yesterday about, about cooperation, but maybe that's not, maybe that's not everything. Um, you had some interesting ideas, uh, other things that are at play in North, in North America. So I want to hand it over to you to explain that. Uh, excellent. Thank you very much. And thanks for the Jack White reference. He's a fellow Detroiter. So of course he knows about supply chains, even though he spends a lot of time in Nashville now, but uh, still that's, that's a good sign. And I'm really looking forward to getting on to the uh, questions from, from Hoover. It reminds me, I was thinking about this yesterday. It, it, it's like someone asked, uh, former Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, what caused the Great Depression? And he said, uh, but Uva. So there you are. Uh, sorry. I, I thought you were going for a Jay-Z joke, yeah. but, I, but I like that. All right, fair enough. So, so the thing I think that is happening, building on what both Ted and, um, and Spencer said, is that we're seeing supply chains respond to also consumer demand. And what is consumer demanding? Not just goods, but they want to know more about the goods. So you have a lot of young consumers who want to know, will, uh, will this product affect climate change? Will this product uh, have forced labor in it? Will this product reflect my values? And 20 years ago, they cared about the brand on the outside of the box. Now they care about the whole production of the product, life cycle, carbon impacts, all of those things. And for those folks, we're going to talk to the beef guys, the beef guys are coming and buying us dinner. Um, or helping us with dinner, that those guys have had supply chain issues. Where, where, does the, where does the cattle come from? How well is it treated? So as consumers demand more information from supply chains, you start building richer and richer senses of each step in the chain. And I remember during the USMCA negotiations, there was an initial proposal, um, came out of the US, that we would go all the way to the origin of the raw material and trace content all the way through in the automotive supply chain. And the auto companies didn't want to do that, but they're getting there now where they know every supplier into their chain. And one of the other reasons this is important is institutional investors, big pension funds and others have rules about what they can invest in and what they can't. And they want to know, is there any forced labor? Is there any tobacco? Is there any cannabis? Whatever it is that they're trying to avoid has to be out or they won't make that investment. Those two things are driving an increasingly data rich and whether we like it or not, increasingly transparent supply chains. And in Canada, the United States, we're on the cutting edge of that because first, we're early adopters in technology. And, and second, we, we have a real uh, sort of respect for the consumer as well as the investor. This is a great capitalist society. You don't see that everywhere. And I think that's one of our great strengths. And then you have what Spencer was talking about, the resilience issue. And I think a lot of commentary has said, well, we went from just in time where by reducing inventory, we could still pay decent wages and be competitive with China by bringing in some China goods. 
Now we want to say, oh, let's have a just-in-case strategy. So we have a backup in case of disruptions. But I think that's a blip. I think where we're headed is a sort of just-a-minute strategy where we have systems finely tuned with artificial intelligence, machine learning, so that you can make a very quick adjustment. And if there are, no, no offense to anyone, Freedom Canada truckers blocking the Ambassador Bridge, there can be a rapid decision to reroute the trucks so that the supply chain keeps moving. That comes to Scotty's question about the border. Um, yes, tariffs are a choice, but the border is a choice as well. And the way in which we've used the border to stop COVID has been really poor. Um, I know that a lot of trade continued because we declared trade essential. So people could move back and forth. Truck drivers who weren't even vaccinated could move back and forth. I think it was a mistake to base the policy on a judgment of the essential nature of something. And even worse, when the US and Canada had different definitions of what qualified as essential. And in the short run, we got through what could have been a much worse economic shock because of COVID. But in the long run, we suffered because investors want to go to meet the company they're investing in. People need to cross the border to pick up a new customer or to expand their business operations. And we made it hard for people, even if they tried to follow all the rules, to go back and forth across the border. So getting that back will make a big difference. And, and I think our, our, border, our border response to COVID made another uh, mistake. Uh, don't mind my saying, I guess. And that is that we have trusted traveler programs. We had trusted shipper programs. These are all well-established. People who volunteered to work with the government to move the goods. And those should have been our trusted test beds for seeing what we could do to move goods more quickly. And we didn't use either of those programs effectively in trying to keep the flow going. So another problem. I want to conclude a little bit um, talking about USMCA. And the USMCA is not NAFTA 2.0. It's a very different kind of an agreement. And as we've seen in other places, including this new Indo-Pacific framework, that uh, economic framework that the US is pushing, there are a lot of agreements out there that are something less than what we had with NAFTA and what we have with USMCA. Um, this is an agreement that really fosters close cooperation between the three North American countries in areas we were never transparent before. For example, Mexican wage rates for, for the auto sector. The cooperation that it will require to make USMCA work really will put a premium on nearshoring or, or basically making decisions. And we're seeing this all over North America where companies are putting North America first just because the risks are less, uh, are less severe and they don't have to worry about uh, trans-Pacific shipping. Also, one of the things that made, I think, China such an attractive partner were for small parts where there wasn't a lot of cost. Now you can make many of those small parts with additive manufacturing on the shop floor. So you don't even have the transportation issue. So there's a lot of ways this decoupling has an economic push, not just a political push. But USMCA also has something very important in it. And that is, it has elements of protection. And I think it's the least well understood aspect of our USMCA. Yes, we could put border adjustment fees on countries or products that don't have a carbon price built into them. Uh, that's something that was allowed under the agreement. We've allowed uh, for restrictions agreements if people are, are involved with forced labor. Is that protectionism a la, to go back to Ted, the 1930s? I don't think so. I, and I think this is, I, I hate to say this, but I think this is the one thing our politicians got right. If we're going to have a high standards economy that satisfies the consumer who wants to know there's no bad things in my supply chain, if we're going to have um, high standards on climate, if we're going to try to maintain decent wages for, for workers, we can't be undermined by, if you don't mind my saying, cheap Chinese crap that comes in with none of those things and puts the people who try to be the good actor out of business. 
And what we've done is given ourselves tools so that we can, we can prevent that kind of product from coming in, maintain our high standards. If we turn those weapons against each other, and obviously the U.S. doesn't have a carbon price universally, Canada could easily decide it wants to put a, a border adjustment fee on American products, we'll hurt ourselves a lot. But the challenge is, can we coordinate this and protect ourselves as a region, not as Fortress North America, but as three musketeers trying to make it in this crazy world of ours? And I think there's a high potential that we'll make it. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, you touched on a, a few interesting things that I want to come back to, uh, friendshoring being one of them, but um, also supply chain legislation. I'd say in the last, since about 2010, we've seen increasing um, amounts of supply chain legislation, as you mentioned, really tied to those ESG uh, social uh, governance and environmental uh, issues. Um, they're becoming more broad and, 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 and more impactful, and I think, you know, that's the point. Um, you know, in the U.S., we've seen the U.S. Uyghur Pre Prevention Act pass last year, and uh, on the Canadian side, we're watching S-211 likely get all, part all party support as well. So we'll have our own forced labor supply chain legislation here. Um, we're also seeing a lot of stuff, you know, I deal with customs, and I'm seeing more and more um, environmental supply chain legislation on the horizon um, when we, uh, we amended the Canadian Environmental Protection Act. Um, that gave a lot of way to what I'm seeing and maybe other importers are seeing as well, a lot more questions about the plastics in your supply chain. Um, again, you know, those are, those are driving important principles, but in practice, how do you get your business ready for that? Um, it's not something everybody's used to, and uh, the more global your business is, the, the larger team you're bringing in to, uh, to, to sort of work around those requirements. So it's going to require a change. I think I got I got your perspective, Chris, on this. I'm happy to come back to you, but maybe I'll I'll open it up to you, Spencer and, and Ted, just to to tell me how you think the supply chain legislation is going to change the shape of things, um, you know, outside of North America. I can, I can start it. Um, I think it's a great question. The so I think more of a, a broader view of this as well. Um, we've certainly seen, um, you know, I think that one of the the big sort of takeaways. Um, from not just the pandemic. Pandemic helped to illuminate a lot of the, the vulnerabilities in pharmaceuticals, in uh, PPE, personal protection equipment, in uh, other critical goods and semiconductors. But I think even going a little further back, even you know, to 2016, even as far back as 2016, maybe even earlier, there was a growing realization from a national security perspective as well, that a lot of our key industries were vulnerable to um, stolen technology or IP theft, to potentially US technology, in the case of China, for instance, um, being sold to companies like Huawei, for instance, um, for use for dual use technology, um, especially for those companies that have crossover applications or where there's a gray, gray area, gray line between uh, civilian use and, and military use. And so, there was a lot more, I think, you know, in addition to just tariffs, a lot more efforts beginning as far back as 2016, 27, 2018, really at the beginning of the trade war to enact export controls. I mean, those export controls existed in the past. We had, you know, in the U.S., like International Traffic and Arms Regulations or ITAR. We had the entity list. But you had a series of legislation such as like FIRMA, which really helped to grossly expand the powers of the community of foreign investment in the U.S. and other types of measures as well as expanding of export controls to really prevent um, you know, more and more of that, the risk of that technology going to Chinese companies. And so you know, I think that process was already underway with respect to supply chain resiliency or finding ways. And I, so I think that the, the Uyghur Forced Labor Act in the US, for instance, 
um, really kind of comes on the heels of this budding sort of process that was already happening on the U.S. side. And then also, you know, just to make it more, to, to look on both sides, the, on the Chinese side, you know, because China's the target. I mean, as much as we, these, are, these bills don't talk specifically about China, we all know it's China, right? China's the main focus, often, not always, but oftentimes of, these, of a lot of these policies. On the Chinese side, the trade war and those export controls also jarred the Chinese economy and Chinese planners into realizing how vulnerable their supply chains were. That's why in 2000, late 2020, China came out, the Chinese leadership came out with a new policy framework called dual circulation, which there's a lot of Marxist-Leninist jargon if you care to learn more about it. Um, that's your hobby, but like, um, it basically establishes that or it identifies and, and sizes up that there are, in the case for Ch from China's perspective, it wanted to make its exporters more competitive. That's the outer circulation. But really, I think much more compelling and interesting is how they really wanted to shore up what they call the internal circulation, which is making their domestic economy more robust, more resilient to the kinds of disruptions they were experiencing as well. Um, they saw that, you know, when ZTE, for instance, uh, the Chinese telecom firm got in trouble because they were selling technology to Iran that was using U.S. technology. Um, if they had been cut out of the U.S. supply chain, they would have been finished. I mean, they would have just disappeared. It would be impossible, catastrophic. Um, in most cases, you know, China is still a net, they're still an export assembler, export processor and final assembler, um, whereas many of the intermediate goods, which are typically more high, high, higher value added, are manufactured abroad and just shipped to China as an import and then assembled as part, as part of a final good. So you're seeing them also recognize because of the geopolitical tensions and because of the tensions with the U.S. around trade and the, those opening salvos with respect to export controls, you are seeing more and more efforts to, on both sides to try to, I, I, I try not to use the term decouple because I don't think it's realistic, but maybe decoupleize. There's a way to soften it somehow. Um, I'm constantly searching for a new term to describe what's happening. Disentangle, um, it's more of maybe too many syllables, but um, some way to kind of describe what both sides are really trying not to completely on disentangle, not completely decouple, but to find ways to shore up those vulnerabilities. And you know, you're seeing it with the, in US legislation now too, the, the CHIPS Act I think is gonna be voted on this week um, to address semiconductors, investing in semiconductors. You're seeing the reconciliation right now between the American Competes Act and US Innovation and Competition Competitive Act. So I think that that's a trend that's gonna to continue to kind of happen over time. It's gonna be that continuous sort of, not a divorce, but a separation of some sort. Conscious uncoupling. Conscious uncoupling. Yes, yes. <laughs> also, I'll just add one more thing to try to put this in a bit of context for all of uh, those of you in the room who are, who are in business. One of the reasons the last 30 years have been such a wonderful period for business, and particularly for international business, is that business interests and the interests of Western governments aligned very well. So what the U.S. and Western governments wanted was they wanted you to go and expand around the world. They wanted you to invest in China. They wanted you to invest in Southeast Asia. They wanted you to invest in Latin America. Africa had challenges, but they wanted you to invest in Africa. And the reason was a, a basic framework of thinking that said, there's a whole bunch of good things that come out of this. So, you know, when, when you know, American, European, Canadian companies are investing abroad, they're making these countries wealthier. Wealthier countries are likely to be more peaceful. They're not likely to challenge this Western dominated system. That's a good thing, right? Yes, there are environmental issues, but all things being equal, the Western companies uh, uphold higher environmental values than a lot of local companies. So this is gonna improve 
environmental standards in these countries as well. Same on the, on the labor issues. Yes, we know, you know that there are problems in terms of contractors and subcontractors, but generally the Western companies are gonna raise standards in all these places. And that aligned well with business interests. There was a lot of money to be made in doing that. I think that, you, know, you talk about decoupling, I think there's been something of a decoupling of business interests and political governmental interests. I mean, from a security perspective, there's a lot of concern now about what it is that Western companies are selling China in particular. And now with respect to Russia, we've cut Russia off from basically every high technology good. It's a Cold War type economic embargo on Russia. Environment, well, growing concern about climate change. I think, you know, the sort of, oh, this will all work itself out because, you know, the Western companies have high standards. I mean, we don't necessarily believe that anymore, right? We've got a, a global climate challenge. And I think governments are saying we need to do more. And then on the, the forced labor stuff, you know, some of this driven by the unions, some of it by NGOs, just a greater awareness of labor rights issues around the world and an insistence by political leaders that companies take this on board. So all of that is producing, as you know, Allison, enormous challenges for the companies. So your interests and the interests of the Western government's leaders are not nearly as closely aligned as they were in the 80s, 90s, most of the 2000s, even into the 2000s and 10s. There's a decoupling there, and that's a big new challenge. I'm just gonna add one point and picks up on what both Ted and Spencer have said, and that is, if we create transparent, data-rich supply chains, we also create an opportunity, which I think governments, particularly the US, will take on board, which is using Magnitsky-type sanctions going after individual people in supply chains. And we haven't seen that yet. I think the Russians were surprised that the US and the Europeans and Canada hit them so hard with economic sanctions. And there were voices in Washington that said, this is a mistake. If you hit them this hard, everyone, including China, will look at that and they'll try to decouple from you because they're vulnerable. But they haven't. Um, a lot of them are still tied in. And so if we decide that we have this Chinese oligarch or that Russian oligarch that we want out of the system, we'll have the ability to go to every company they own and freeze them out very quickly, which will create a fear of doing business with anybody you don't know really, really well, who's their investor and who's involved. I, I think that will push us apart a little bit more, but it again puts us in the position of high standards. And I, we have a question down here. I'm just gonna, mm -hmm. am I allowed to steal the questions? It's a it, fantastic question. It's yeah. a, a question from Manuel Brunet Jai, who's asking us about Europe and US-Europe trade. I think the direction that we're going, the US is going to have partners in places like Canada, but Europe is another place where the values are the same, the technology and technology adaptation is the same. Europe's a natural partner for this, and they have been a partner on sanctions with Russia. They're going to be a partner now on China. The European Union has declared that China is a, is a geopolitical rival. So we are moving into a, a friend space. Um, yeah, let me just add on that. It's very, it's very interesting that the trade agenda with Europe never succeeded, the idea of doing some big free trade agreement with Europe. But this agenda, what they call the Trade and Technology Council, where they're working on this whole set of supply chain issues, there's a lot of big stuff on the plate there, and the US and Europe have been working very closely. So I very much agree with, with Chris on that front, and I think Canada will be part of that as well. That's great, thank you. Um, and, and I liked, I liked your, um, your, your uncoupling comparison in terms of, um, you know, we're, we're starting to see that, that there was that Western freedom with large Western companies. Um, and now with this supply chain legislation, it's, it brings us back to not putting those companies in charge of maybe making foreign policy decisions anymore, but it's coming back on the nation state. 
Um, so, you know, one thing about supply chain legislation uh, or supply chain policies, I think, you know, the, the big guys are going to be okay, right? Like, uh, you know, big companies have lots of lawyers and lots of experts and they, they can figure out a, a way around this. But how much is it going to hurt small business um, who maybe don't have the resources? Is that transition going to be an issue for small business? And, and what, what kind of supports could governments su supply in that transition? Or how should they ready themselves for this kind of policy? Yeah. yeah I'm just going to start, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of other good comments. I, so I think one of the things about, about a data-rich supply chain is, is that it has a virtue, but it's a compliance cost issue. And we saw after 9-11, Companies like General Motors and Ford were able to adapt to, you know, the, the new CTPAT FAST program. They were sharing data with the government and they could be trusted shippers. But they were so big, there were lots of people to fill that, those forms out and make sure the system worked. For small and medium-sized enterprises, compliance cost is a huge issue. And we can use technology to try to recover some of the just-in-time benefit by getting rid of inventory. But I think one of our big challenges in North America and Canada, as well as in the US, is public sector productivity, where you get a good outcome for less bureaucracy. And we have to have simpler ways for ourselves to, to tell the government what it needs to know and get back to business. Um, if there is a cautionary tale, I think we're seeing it both in Canada and the US on, on healthcare. We became much more focused on electronic health records, knowing more about the patient and in real time sharing that data. Uh, but it's a huge burden on individual doctors who found themselves happier in a big hospital system than in a small business where they, they were in effect an SME practice. It's still good that we have all that data around healthcare, but because we weren't attentive to compliance costs, we caused a shift in the structure of industry just to satisfy politics, not efficiency. The same thing could happen to SMEs. And there are intermediary firms. We saw FedEx, we saw UPS and others who stepped forward to help small business overcome some of those post 9-11 challenges. We're gonna look for intermediaries, but we also should look for the public sector to make it easier to comply with these new requirements as a small or medium-sized business. I mean, just one small thing I'd add to that. I mean, if you look at international business, an awful lot of small and medium enterprises are operating essentially as part of the supply chains of larger multinational companies. And given the demands on transparency, I think there's gonna be a lot of incentive, in fact, requirements for the larger companies to work with their smaller suppliers and help them uh, to ensure that those smaller suppliers have the transparency that's necessary to meet these new requirements. So I think you'll see a lot of work uh, between the larger companies and the smaller companies to try to meet the compliance challenges with the small companies can't do on their own. You're right about that. And just to just to add to what Kristen said, I've already mentioned. I, I think that the you know it's always going there's always going to be a cost, right? And that cost is going to be a higher cost burden for small businesses. So many ways that within the supply chain, the OEM can help to sort of subsidize or support those costs in some way. Um, the problem is, you know, I think the take China for again for instance, like China represents about thirty percent of manufacturing output as of twenty twenty one. There will be some movements um, as companies begin to explore diversifying supply chains in order to meet their compliance, meet compliance with some of these rules. But it's going to be incredibly costly, I think. It, it's going to have to happen at some point. It's already kind of happening regardless of policy, I think, because of rising labor costs, as I mentioned, because of other sort of secular structural issues that are shaping the, the dispersion of supply chains. But it's going to be, for small businesses, um, a lot of those key inputs are still there are very few alternatives from sourcing from places such as China. So it's going to be very difficult, but there'll have to be some effort um, on the part of their members in supply chain to help them help subsidize some of those costs to figure out where to diversify. 
Great. So to that end, is there is there an argument for reshoring? Is offshoring going to make a comeback, or are we are we in the era of friend shoring, where we're not just sticking to domestic production, but we're um, you know sourcing from from acceptable allies and partners? You know, I mean, maybe I'll start with that one if you want. Sure. I mean, it's interesting. Spencer and I have had these conversations, right? I follow the policy a lot, and if you listen to the policy discussions, then you think, yeah, reshoring, friend shoring. This is the big trend. We're pulling everything back. Look at the data on U.S.-China trade, and you know we have basically record levels of imports from China. So you don't really see it in the in the data there as much. I still think we're in the early stages of this, and you know a lot of you are probably involved in this in your companies. There's no question that we have seen a significant movement of certain businesses from China to other parts of Asia, particularly to Southeast Asia. Some of that probably cost-driven, but some of that security-driven. I mean, that started with the with the Trump tariffs. Right, so so companies trying to escape the 25% tariffs by doing business in in Vietnam or Malaysia or other places. I think in any sector that raises national security concerns, and we're thinking pretty broadly about this. If you look at the Biden administration's sort of initial list of critical sectors, they included semiconductors, uh, batteries, critical minerals, which was talked about a bit yesterday, and you know pharmaceuticals and medical devices, I think you're looking at those areas, there's going to be a lot of governmental pressure and probably incentives as well to, to bring more of that uh, kind of work back home. But I do think it's going to be a very mixed picture. I'm, I'm, I'm with Spencer. I don't know what the term is, but I think decoupling is too strong a term. I think in some sectors, we're going to see a lot of reshoring, friendshoring. Others, I think it, the, the, it, they just don't raise significant enough concerns at the governmental level and the economics are going to continue to dictate doing a lot of business in in developing countries, and I think including including China. I mean, you know, um, investment is expanding in China. A lot of that is companies reinvesting their Chinese earnings and aiming production at the Chinese market. But but it's not like companies are you know Western companies are in any kind of massive way pulling out of China at the moment. So it's a complicated picture. I would just to add agree with everything um, Ted said, but I I would just add that. Um, from a geopolitical perspective on reshoring and nearshoring, we are seeing, you know, if you look at the Biden administration's in addition to the identifying the su critical supply chains, um, Senator Blinken has, or sorry, Secretary Blinken has talked about in his recent speech in May and then in previous speeches as well, talked about this idea of invest, compete, and align. And also this idea of really, you know, we've, we went from a period of um, engagement with China um, from about, you know, well before 2001, but really kind of reaching, I think, an apogee with China's ascent to the WTO in 2001, to beginning with the Trump era, um, shifting to confrontation. And now we're shifting to what's sort of quasi-containment. And containment, um, the way that Secretary Blinken has described containment is really about not confrontation, but really helping to shape the environment in which China and other adversaries make decisions. So shaping those sort of the geopolitical context and international order in a way that helps shape their own, um, make, incentivizes them to behave in a way that aligns with our preferences and our vital interests. And I think that applies to this concept. This, this then applies then we talk about nearshoring, um, friendshoring, is that the administration is making these moves now with the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework and with other initiatives to try to focus on building these sort of like-minded allies in certain areas to create the context then to kind of, you know, because the whole democracy versus autocracy um, binary is, it sounds good, but it's really messy. And we saw that two weeks ago when Biden went to Saudi Arabia and did the fist pump. So 
Um, it's very messy and complicated, but I think that trying to build alliances or frameworks that then try to encourage more of our businesses, at least if not to reshore, because reshoring is incredibly costly. And yes, there have been a lot of advancements with, uh, with automation. Um, so there, is, there are some companies that are exploring or have been moving back because of automation technology opportunities, but also looking at where are those potential allies and companies are going to have to be thinking more and more in the geopolitical context when they think about the supply chains. So to your point, um, what the heck is IPEF? And should Canada be sad that we're not included in it? Did we get friend zone there? Um, is, this a, is, this, is this more for the US? I, I, I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. I, I, so IPEF refers to the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework. It's, I'm quite cynical about this. So the United States pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, Canada stayed in the new CPTPP. Um, I think it was, it was one of the worst economic decisions the United States has made in decades. I think we're still paying the cost of it. We're going to for a long time. Biden administration recognizes that, but politically they feel like TPP is untouchable. A lot of their allies in the labor unions and, and elsewhere don't want to see the U.S. go back into TPP. So this is sort of the U.S. trying to do an end run around TPP by creating this new framework. But nobody really knows what it's, what's in it. I mean, there's no, there's no market access offer. The U.S. isn't offering to lower tariffs, do traditional market access things. I think it's an adjunct to this conversation that membership in the IPEF is a sort of seal of approval that you're a friend for friendshoring purposes, and I think we're going to see that fleshed out. Um, uh, you know, Chris, you can tell us all why Canada should be involved. It should be involved. <laughs> what about us, Chris? Yes, absolutely. Canada should have been involved in the first place. And I, th I think sometimes you, you get these conversations in Washington where Canada has been put in the Western Hemisphere basket, and when they're thinking Asia-Pacific, you know, the, the people don't automatically think Canada belongs, but of course, Canada is a TPP member. Canada is negotiating, I'm sorry, CPTPP, uh, but Canada is also negotiating with uh, ASEAN. So Canada is a major presence in the Pacific and really needs to be included. I'm going to add something though on friendshoring. I can't resist. I think one of the other things when you create a data-rich supply chain and everything depends on what the data says about who you're doing business with, you create an enormous incentive for hacking. Um, and cybersecurity is going to be a really important part of creating a zone of trust in which you can do business. You're going to have to protect your own data. You're going to have to rely on the government to kind of do some retaliation and deterrence. But thankfully, as a friend of mine likes to say, and I'm stealing his line without giving him any credit, just saying this vague friend, but um, what he likes to say is that thankfully there are not a lot of hackers who want to kill people because there are lots of ways you could by interfering with systems. There are a lot of people who want to make money. And if you could go to an SME and you could tweak the data so they became the number one supplier of a widget, and all of a sudden orders get shifted to this really great supplier, but the hacker just bought a bunch of their stock before it did that, and then they just quietly cash out and make the profit and then change the data back. Very hard for us to figure out, you know, whether, whether the data we've got is good. So we need partners. And this is one area where Canada has come a long way. Not only is Canada good on cybersecurity, I think, but after a lot of debate, Canada has undertaken deterrence. And I, there were a lot of people who said Canada was not going to get into the business of punching back or threatening retaliation if you mess up Canadian systems. That was going to be the American job. But now Canada is doing that very, very well and increasingly in a sophisticated basis. So friendshoring is not just about liking each other. It's about trusting each other and trusting, as Ronald Reagan says, we trust but verify. It requires that we have these kind of systems and we're all equally secure.
Thank you so much. Um, I don't know if you were um, following the 2022 Supply Chain Ministerial Forum as closely as I was, um, but uh, it just concluded earlier this month and it stressed global cooperation. Um, and, and, and it made me wonder, especially after some, co some conversations yesterday about Canada-US co cooperation, how do we manage global cooperation when you have so many modes and so many interests that are divergent, um, bringing in so many partners? Who, opera who operationalizes it all? We have a WTO, we have a World Customs Organization, but we don't really have a World Supply Chain Organization. So, so who's in charge of that and how do we prioritize? You know, I'm, I'm happy to give the, the first cut. I mean, one of the, you know, the, the, the World Trade Organization has, has been struggling for a bunch of years now, right? It hasn't been able to do significant agreements since it was created in the 1990s. But the one partial exception to that is trade facilitation issues, which really are about, you know, encouraging seamless commerce across borders, helping developing countries figure out you know, their customs and import export systems, trying to encourage efficiency at ports, which has obviously, you know, been a struggle in the last couple of years. But I actually think that's a place, there was a big trade facilitation agreement in 2016 negotiated by the WTO. I think that's still a place where the WTO has and can make some real progress. I mean, some of the issues we're talking about here that have to do with goods that are considered sensitive in one way or another, you're not gonna see global cooperation on that, right? This, this is where you're gonna see cooperation among, among allies. But I do think there'll be there, those two tracks, the sort of general efficiency of commerce globally, in which there really is for the most part, still a collective interest around the world in, in improving that. I mean, you know, it's important not to forget, we do, you know, trade is very different these days than it was 30 years ago. I use Richard Baldwin's uh, work in, in my class. And he talks about, you know, the movement from a world of comparative advantage trade in which we made what we were best at and traded to this world of integrated supply chains in which stuff is made everywhere and assembled at final locations. You're not going to blow that system up. And so I think there's still a lot of incentive for countries to work regardless of their political inclinations to try to make that system, as long as it's not sensitive goods, work as efficiently as possible. And, and if I could pick up on that, one of the things that we, when we went from Canada's free trade to NAFTA and then to WTO, one of the things that was important for us to do was to recognize a lot of countries were not that familiar. And, and for a long time, the countries would just hire a Washington law firm to guide them through these multilateral negotiations because they just didn't have that capability. I think coming out of COVID, there are a lot of developing countries that are pretty severely set back on their development ladder. Uh, COVID hit them hard, their public health systems were not where they needed to be, and they're going to be looking to get back into the game. And one of the great things that we can do, and I, I think this is very important, not only for the US, but for Canada as an intermediary, is to say, how do we help get you back in? And how do we help you to participate in these new and changed rural supply chains? There was an article in Foreign Affairs, the Council of Foreign Relations publication, which I, I, I still remember by Stephen Flint, you might remember it too, it was in 2000, and he was saying, you know, the Walmarts of the world with their sophisticated inventory management are creating a problem. And, and he cites Haiti. And in Haiti, they made baseballs, they made underwear, they made all these things. But because Walmart demanded that you give them data and then ship as soon as the shelf barcode was scanned that they needed it, Haiti couldn't supply Walmart. And so they got intermediaries with warehouses in Port-au-Prince who had the technology, who could then add some cost and take most of the profit and then ship from Haiti to the U.S. Um, that kind of problem is going to be echoed where intermediaries start, cro intermediaries start cropping up. 
to try to help developing countries participate in this world. And if we get ahead of that, we actually reach out and try to help countries to sophisticate their management of supply chain and facilitation, um, then I think we'll have a lot of countries eager to join our side of that ledger. But if we leave them out and they have no choice, China's going to run a don't ask, don't tell supply chain, they'll, that'll be maybe all they can feel they can aspire to. So we shouldn't stop thinking about everyone else. And there's a lot of win here if we're willing to reach out. So going back to um, border facilitation, and, and feel free to keep this within the Penoir, uh, Canada, US region, or if you have a, a, a more global perspective, um, feel free to share that too. But um, we've heard a lot about uh, technology, AI, and data being a crucial piece of the answer. If you could have your wish list and advise either the Canada, US governments or other governments to invest in a certain area that's going to alleviate um, you know, uh, border gridlock uh, and move goods faster, what would that be? I mean, I, you know, I, I, honestly, my concern is more with the movement of people than it is, is with goods. I mean, we, we did a much better job, the two countries during the pandemic, in maintaining the, the movement of goods. I think there's still a lot of progress to be made on the various trusted trader programs and, and advanced notification and, and others, though there are complications uh, with those. The border panel yesterday went into some some interesting things. But I think, unfortunately, on the traveler front, we've, we've really broken down. I mean, if you, if you look back, you know, the secular trend in, in, in people moving across the border, and Andy was talking just about how important tourism is for the economy here in Alberta, and it's true throughout this region. The secular trend is down since 1990, right? And, you know, 9-11 had a big impact that we didn't recover from. And, you know, I cross the border at Peace Arch all the time. The lineups I'm seeing this summer are the worst I've seen in many, many, many years. I just don't think we have the people portion of this right. There's a lot of progress that we can make in terms of segmenting border crossers based on the information that the governments have about them. I know Canada's trying to work on this with the Arrive Can app, but there just isn't the sophistication in the movement of people space that we've seen in the movement of goods space. And so if I were going to make anything a priority right now, it would be investing in technology and capacity for the movement of people, because there's just been a very serious breakdown in that area, not just COVID, but it happened after 9-11. It's been going on for a long time, and I'd like to see that reversed. And I'll just add, I think that one of the, the really foolish things that we did, despite, despite trying to keep people moving, was create systems in which there was somebody who's judging your purpose, but not um, a way for somebody who wants to cross the border to follow the rules and cross the border. I mean, people are willing to share a lot of information. I know no one really loves the Arrive Can app for good reason, but at least it was an app. The U.S. is these paper CDC cards, and, and that's your vaccination record. We, we are so much more sophisticated than that. We should allow people to go back and forth. We should create systems that let people qualify and just tell them what you, they need to do and they'll do it. It's been amazing how well people have, have responded already, um, that, that people have been willing to share information, put it on their cell phones, et cetera, with the government just to be able to cross. It shows how important it is. On tourism, and Andy might have a better set of data on this from WestJet, but I think one of the challenges with tourism is that for a long time, business travelers subsidized the rest of the tourism industry. There were more hotels, there were more flights, because business travelers paid more, they needed the flexibility, big companies bought whole blocks of, of tickets, so airlines were able to expand their service, have more flights a day, et cetera. And that meant that as a tourist, you could, you could take advantage of all that beautiful capacity. 
we're all getting used to Zoom. You can use Zoom to spare yourself having to fly to Calgary for a meeting, maybe, at least some of the meetings. You cannot use Zoom to see Paris. You can't use Zoom to visit grandma, or you can do something, but it's not the same. So we're gonna to have to think about how the changes and the barriers we've put to ordinary people traveling are creating knock-on effects on the entire sort of quality of life of being able to travel, being able to participate in the service economy. And we've had a lot of questions coming in on the screen about SMEs. There are more SMEs in hospitality, tourism, small restaurants, all the, all the business that doesn't show up in normal trade data, but is extremely important for Canada and the US. And we have got to get those those shops open, we've got to create those jobs again. Very quick addition, because I know we're running down on time here, but the, the best example of this is the Nexus program, right? The Nexus program is the program that, that allows people to put information forward and move more freely. Well, you look at all the priority on the movement of goods during, during COVID, we're coming out of it. And the Nexus program is still basically shut down. The governments can't get their act together to get people new Nexus cards. That just tells me that this is such a low priority and it needs to be a much higher priority. I just an anecdote. I crossed the border by a vehicle a couple weeks ago. I dutifully filled out my arrive cam, had everything filled out in advance. It still took me three hours to cross the border at Sumas, so, which is supposed to be the one that's not as busy. So just, just, I mean, echoing everything that Chris and Ted have said, but just to, uh, you know, especially bringing back to the idea of like reshoring and nearshoring, really trying to find ways to make it easier for companies to move products and people back and forth as one of one more holistic industrial ecosystem is, I think that there's a stronger imperative now at least to try to make those changes with respect to AI and technology and data sharing. Thank you very much. And we have one minute and 45 seconds to go. So I'm gonna do a lightning round closing remarks. We have a lot of policymakers in the audience today. If you could give them any closing advice on how to future proof their supply chains or to implement any policies that might do so, in, I don't know, like 30 seconds or less, what would you say? Make it simple. Do you remember what your good one was? No. No, it's empower the private sector. Let them go to, yeah. Yeah, all right. All right. So, and we're we're going to give you the closing because it was good. Yeah. Go. This was at our, our drinks last night. No, I, well, yeah, it's true. I'm always better when I'm drinking. I don't know why. Yes, um, that, that's, that's always true. It's the, I, I think that one of the things that we forget in North America is that we aren't as the old British empire was, trade following the flag, it's the business and the private sector that have actually created this whole supply chain infrastructure. They've created this economy that we have, and they have come up with solutions again and again when we've needed the most. I mean, you look at the vaccines we developed through amazing technology very quickly. You look at the logistics that we've managed to adjust to one shock after another. We have an amazing private sector, and we have a good intellectual property to support those innovators, we do need to make sure they get venture capital, but rather than government thinking that it has to provide the solution, I think government should talk to business and say, where are you going? How do we feel about that? And how can we support that? And uh, you're gonna get that in this, this room. You're gonna get that in North America, but you won't get that in China. I think that's a good last word. But. It's a gift. <laughs> I, I think that's, totally agree. Um, I think that just understanding the costs that are borne by businesses before enacting a policy which maybe seems like an obvious thing to do, but no, still novel. Um, but see, uh, definitely with respect to supply chains, um, you know, compliance issues, making sure that companies have a voice and are able to communicate and, and try to resolve, you know, help these companies with these compliance issues and the cost that they're going to bear to in order to comply is really important for informing policy. It's fantastic. Well, thank you to all three of you. It's been a great conversation. Thanks, everyone.
Well, Chris, I was in and out of that panel when you were giving it live, so I'm so glad we had a chance to to recreate it or, or to carry it here on Canusa Street. And I was also happy that once again, the question of nexus and the backlogs uh, was discussed. That's really important. You, you you really covered supply chains, really hot topic, very important, but also you got into the border. And and for that, uh, I know our listeners and, and travelers in general are very grateful. I think that's something that people don't appreciate. You know, we've disrupted the border for travel because of COVID, and there were good reasons for that. But and then we said, well, we'll let essential traffic go. And a lot of the truck traffic went. The goods trade continued. So we said, oh, no problem. But over time, that trade needs people to go and meet their customers, to to go and look at an investment. If without travel, eventually all the goods trade in the world starts to erode. And we've we've been waiting now what almost three years. We really need to have uh, the border open again for and, and regular, so that people can travel back and forth. And uh, and the problem's huge. We- and- and we need to get back to synchronicity. That's my yes. word of the day, synchronicity. The border management by our two governments is asynchronous. Yes. That's not the way it should be on Canusa Street. No, and I, I have to say uh, there's an asynchronicity. Nobody liked my Herbert Hoover joke. I tried, <laughs> but you know, I guess maybe it's too soon. Great Depression. <laughs> too soon. <laughs> All right, my friend. Well, congratulations on a great panel. And uh, I think that's it for this this edition of Canusa Street pop-up at Penwar. Say that three times fast. I don't think I could, but you said it well. (laughs) There we go. See you next time. See you next time. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.